0: Hello, welcome to all talks of the WSC Spotlight. My name is Marvin and over the next two hours we will learn about neonatal sepsis. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for WSC Spotlight there. Now, let me hand it over to Dr. Kwazi from the WHO to get us started.
1: Hi, this is uh, Shamim Kwasi, who's chairing the session on uh, Neonatal sepsis. We have several very interesting talks in this session, which is a very important topic, and it's leading one of the leading causes of neonatal mortality in the, the world, especially in the low and middle-income countries. The first talk is by Professor Zulfiqar Gupta, who works at Hospital for Sick Children, Canada. He's very well known in in pediatrics and also for neonatal uh, work that he has been doing. He'll be giving a talk on sepsis in newborns, broad overview of social-cultural issues. Uh, He himself will not be able to present it. It's a video-recorded talk, so uh, he won't be able to directly answer questions about after this talk. So after this talk, we'll go on to the uh, next talk. Uh, So now
0: we're going to have this uh, talk by Zulfithar Hello. Thank you very much for the opportunity to share some thoughts on sepsis in newborns and especially with a focus on cultural issues and determinants. Um, I apologize if the quality of my voice isn't optimal because I'm nursing a cold at the moment. Um, what I would like to do is to principally place the context of sepsis in the newborn period in relation to child survival and newborn survival. As many of you are aware, uh, we have made tremendous global progress in reducing under five child mortality over the last couple of decades, and especially in the Millennium Development Goals period, we almost achieved the Millennium Goal 4 target of reducing child mortality by two thirds by the year 2015. Corresponding reductions in neonatal mortality, however, Were relatively low. And as you can see, the slopes of these two lines are generally different with less rates of reduction of neonatal mortality compared to post neonatal child mortality. So, as we speak, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there are close to around 3 million newborns who die every year uh, in the first four weeks of life. And some 10 countries identified here as major countries in South Asia and Sub Saharan Africa account for almost two thirds of all of those deaths. These deaths also uh, are linked to rates of change in these very geographies, which are somewhat problematic. If you were to look in this rather complex graph as to how long will it take on current rates of change for countries to achieve the same rates of newborn survival as some of the high income countries or developed countries have in the year 2016-17, you will begin to recognize that for some countries, such as in sub-Saharan Africa, you're looking for a change that will require more than a century. And we clearly cannot therefore stand on just the momentum of secular trends to achieve these global neonatal goals for survival. It is important to look at the etiological fractions of newborn mortality. Newborn deaths account for about 45% of all under five deaths and they are broadly categorized into three major areas uh, which relate to prematurity and associated complications intrapartum related events or birth asphyxia and the third big category is that of infections which include uh, both neonatal sepsis uh, uh, which is blood stream infections as well as those that may be related to more localized infections and cord infections congenital malformations and some of the other disorders account for a relatively small proportion of neonatal deaths. These neonatal deaths and etiological fractions are also closely linked to maternal disorders, and many of the maternal causes of disruption in normal pregnancy, events such as hypertensive disorders, um, um, abruptio placenti, maternal hemorrhage, and obstruction of labor are associated with many of the important causes of neonatal mortality that I have defined. As we move forward to understand the relationship of various causes of neonatal deaths across the world with varying rates of neonatal deaths in regions, we begin to see the impact that neonatal infections have on newborn survival, particularly in countries with high rates of neonatal mortality. So if you look at countries with rates of neonatal mortality of greater than 30 per 1,000 live births, you could see that the trend and change in neonatal uh, risk of death is some 20 to 30-folds higher for infection-related deaths, and this is related to both um, severity and complications associated with neonatal infections and also with the quality of services within the health system. Let's evaluate for a moment what is known about major risk factors for neonatal sepsis, some of the underlying determinants. And clearly, poverty and being born at home is a major factor uh, that has been identified in the sampling of studies looking at risk factors for neonatal infections uh, from South Asia. Uh, Invasive deliveries with uh, higher risk of iatrogenic complications, maternal infections, especially if accompanied by premature rupture of membranes, um, prematurity and being born small for gestational age and feeding patterns are important risk factors to identify. Let's evaluate some of these in greater detail. Now, there is clearly a broad global progress and improvement in facility based births. But just being born in a facility without appropriate quality of care does not give you the, uh, the same level of support, and interventions required for improving newborn survival. And this is being recognized by the World Health Organization and other partners in the important focus needed on quality of care and which requires both a focus on quality of human resources as well as training and facilities, including simple things like the ambient environment and hand washing and infection prevention facilities in some of these uh, hospitals where births are taking place. This is also evident in improvements in protocols for management of neonatal infections over time. And in this one review that we undertook within Pakistan of how neonatal sepsis was associated with high case fatality rates, you can see that over time between 1980 and 2004, we were able to reduce across a cross-section of institutions neonatal sepsis mortality from 50 to 60 percent to less than 20 percent and much more is also possible over time. What's relatively new in this field is the recognition of associated risks with underlying conditions. So if you look at the timing of cause-specific neonatal mortality, this particular study done in India uh, by Gary Darmstad and Abdullah Baki showed very clearly that sepsis and pneumonia-related neonatal mortality principally peaked. Uh, After the first few days of life and about 40% of all culture proven episodes of bacteremia occurred in the first three days of life suggestive of a vertical transmission or association with maternal infections and this was also quite evident in an analysis of a cohort uh, from Nepal where those who had maternal pyrexia or fever in the seven days prior to delivery, especially premature babies were associated with a sevenfold higher risk of neonatal mortality. We also recognize that it's not only just maternal ac- acquisition of risks and transmission of infections, but also things that we do with newborns at birth, such as cord care and poor cord care using dirty instruments are not only a risk for development of conditions like neonatal tetanus but also severe infections that may lead to bloodstream infections from omphalitis. So this is an important cause of neonatal sepsis. As I mentioned, size at birth, whether premature or growth retarded, or importantly a combination of both, are important risks for early neonatal complications and risks of subsequent development of infections. Uh, In this series of cohorts that we evaluated from various parts of the world, we were able to look at the association of birth weight and neonatal mortality and see quite clearly that it was the subgroup with prematurity and small for gestational age right here which had close to around 20 to 30 folds higher risk of neonatal mortality in, in the first few weeks of life and this clearly is associated with a range of issues, both immune-related problems and also higher propensity for complications, metabolic complications associated with neonatal infections. Um, We would like to turn to particularly things that we can make a difference with. So if you look at what can be achieved with just simple use of clean birth kits, In in an evaluation of interconnectedness of maternal and newborn outcomes, in a series of studies, if you look at the use of birth kits and their impact on maternal morbidity and neonatal morbidity, a pretty significant reduction in risk of neonatal infections was demonstrated along with risk of maternal infections with the use of clean birth kits. Use of Quad-chlorhexidine in these three large community-based trials from South Asia, uh, in Nepal, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, uh, close to around 23% reduction in neonatal mortality was seen with the use of chlorhexidine for cord care. And as you can see in this kaplan meyer curve, that this effect was explicitly seen in the first week to 10 days of life and continued throughout the neonatal period. There has now been further evaluation of this in relation to the context of where these births are taking place, and this intervention is particularly recommended for births in unclean environments, particularly in community settings. I do want to say a word or two about breastfeeding as a risk for neonatal infections, and quite clearly, the recognition of the importance of breastfeeding for infant health and newborn health uh, is growing by the day. We know that if There is delay in the initiation of breastfeeding as was seen by Karen Edmonds in these data from Ghana uh, that the risk of neonatal mortality uh, after uh, 48 to 72 hours of birth increased by about two to four folds. This has been seen across various other studies as well and this pooled analysis of data on early versus late initiation of breastfeeding from uh, Ghana and Nepal showed that the late initiation of breastfeeding was associated with higher risk and early initiation with a reduced risk of neonatal mortality. Um, if you are unable to breastfeed, and uh, and certainly um, uh, initiation of breastfeeding um, versus not being able to breastfeed is a very absolute uh, category. And here you can see clearly that in the studies which have looked at those who were able to breastfeed versus not, neonatal mortality was reduced significantly with the initiation of breastfeeding and, uh, and its impact on neonatal survival. One such evidence is from studies of skin to skin contact and increased maternal and newborn uh, early um, kangaroo mother care, which was first described in Colombia in Bogota years ago and has. Been shown in various studies to be associated with improved outcomes, thermal control, growth, as well as physiological stabilization. This has now been evaluated in a range of settings. And in the most recent Cochrane review, looking at the impact of kangaroo mother care on breastfeeding at discharge, it's very clear that both intermittent and continuous uh, kangaroo care are associated with higher rates, significantly higher rates of breastfeeding at discharge from hospital. And not surprisingly, are associated with a quite significant 50% reduction in the risk of severe infections and neonatal sepsis. So we have a range of interventions. We have the knowledge and we have the understanding of some of the underlying determinants of neonatal sepsis. And the reason why this becomes very important are the sustainable development goals. As many of you are aware, we now have 17 sustainable goals uh, which are related to a range of things outside of health, but health remains at the center of some of this paradigm and approaches to improving outcomes. And in the context of improving neonatal survival and reducing risks associated with neonatal sepsis, reducing inequities, reducing poverty, improving health systems, access to care, reducing gender inequalities, and improving environmental conditions, including water sanitation and hygiene, remain important interventions to reduce the overall burden of neonatal infections. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh,
1: Thank you. Uh, Zulfiqar was actually speaking through a video which was pre-recorded, so we won't be able to entertain any questions at this time uh, for this talk so we will move on to the next talk which is uh, going to be given by tex gasoon uh, uh, tex is a very well-known figure in the world of uh, sepsis is currently and professor of pediatrics and surgery emergency medicine in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, D.C. And he's also vice chair of Global Alliance for Sepsis and co-chair of World Sepsis Day. So he will be giving a talk on burden, definition, and post-discharge mortality uh, related to neonatal sepsis. Thanks.
2: Uh, thank you very much, Shamin, and I'd like to thank uh, the organizers for the opportunity to really uh, speak a little on the definition of burden and post-discharge mortality. Um, some of my previous colleagues, uh, Zulfi and uh, also Liz Molno early on today, has framed some of the issues in newborn sepsis. Um, so some of what um, uh, they have said, I will try and put it in context um, rather than repeat it. Now, when one might find it very uh, strange to be talking about a definition of sepsis when we know it's a global problem, it's a major problem worldwide. Um, but you may have heard Liz Mollner early on, who had spent her entire life's, uh academic life in Africa, um, say that a diagnosis of sepsis is very difficult. Many people... Uh, 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 relate sepsis to bacterial infections, but sepsis can be caused by any infection that leads to organ dysfunction. So it can be caused by bacteria, viruses, protozoa, etc. As you heard uh, from uh, Zulfi's talk about uh, many uh, infections in newborn, uh, in fact about half uh, of the newborns uh, leading to mortality are due to infections. Part of the issue you also heard from uh, one of the previous talks um, from um, uh, Conrad Reinhart that a global burden of disease uh, classification and the ICD codes do not really code for sepsis. So hence the definition of sepsis uh, is very important to us and there's a lot of work to be done in this area. But if we look at it generally, the definition for newborn sepsis is no different from any other uh, um age group in that it's a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by dysregulated host response to infection. And septic shock is a subset of sepsis in which there is a profound circulatory cellular metabolic abnormalities, and there is a greater risk of mortality. Now, the definition, obviously, uh, we can agree on this definition. What poses a problem for us is that there's a tension created by two things. One, the need to distinguish between an intellectual construct, the essence of what sepsis is, versus a clinical construct, what we can use at a bedside to identify the disease. And many of the questions posed early on by our colleagues who are in the audience was the issue of uh, how do we diagnose sepsis in uh, low-middle-income countries when there are no lab uh, uh, or very minimal laboratory supports? So clinical context matters. And in, uh, where most of the uh, newborns are inflicted by sepsis and are dying in low- and middle-income countries, it is very important that we uh, we uh, uh, look at context uh, very carefully and determine how we diagnose sepsis. So there are many different uh, criteria that could be used, but uh, these are not specific to sepsis only. They are cl- general clinical variables that we look at uh uh, blood pressure, pulse, respiratory rate, uh, feeding, et cetera. And you will hear a later talk on the clinical signs of sepsis, so I will not spend much time on this. The inflammatory variables, uh, you will um, see the C-reactive protein, procalcitonin, uh, white blood cell count, uh, but obviously they are not specific for sepsis o- only. As we get into uh, uh, septic shock, there are hemodynamic variables that are also uh, very important, but when it comes to neonates, one of the issues that we really face is that if you look at the various life support courses, the cutoff for normal versus abnormal of the uh, vital signs are different um, in different um, uh, Causes and hence that poses uh, problems of diagnosis. Also depends on which you use. Organ dysfunction variables are important also, and in many cases rely on some laboratory data and uh, also tissue perfume variables. In high-income setting with resources, we can look at um, uh, nose. That's the uh, the uh, sort of. Uh, Non-invasive monitoring of oxygen uh, saturations in the brain and vital organs, as well as looking at uh, um, uh, video microscopy of uh, organ perfusion, which is not uh, available in many uh, countries. So, in many cases, when we look at uh, newborns, if we have to be have a pragmatic way of looking at this, and a suspicion of sepsis in a community um, is very important. As you heard from Zulfi, one of the uh, rate-limiting steps in achieving the Sustainable Developmental Goals will be the issue of uh, of education to an uh, empowerment of uh, mothers. And one of the things that we need to do is that uh, suspicion of sex in the community need uh, should be geared towards education of uh, both mothers and f- uh, fathers and the extended family as to what the different signs and symptoms are, such as a child feeling hot or cold, uh, poor sucking or feeding, feeble feeble cry, being drowsy or convulsing, or vomiting um, as uh, uh, some of the major danger signs. Also at a facility, we also have to have pragmatic sort of uh, ways of looking at this, and uh, look again for signs of hyper or hypothermia, altered mental status, and also uh, look at uh, convulsions, respiratory distress, uh, signs of umbilical infection in newborn period, uh, poor feeding. And obviously there's a high index of suspicion if um, there's some maternal infection. So the uh, the bottom line is that when we talk about definition of sepsis, it is going to be context there. Uh, dependent. We need to be pragmatic in what we do and bear in mind that there are resources limitation and it is difficult uh, to diagnose. But more importantly, we would like to diagnose early on and so that we can uh, uh, institute treatment early on because the later we diagnose, uh, the more problematic it is, more resource-intense treatment and outcomes are poorer. Uh, The burden of sepsis is something that we have been grappling with Uh, for uh, uh, many years, Uh, you have heard again, uh, uh, Zulfi uh, spoke about a large burden of infection. And um, when we look at the burden of sepsis, uh, especially in the the newborn and under five period, it is really concentrated in the low and middle income countries in sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia. And indeed, things have been getting worse over the... Past uh, decade, in that uh, uh, Margaret Chan, the former um, Director General of the WHO, uh, she said, children in low-income countries are now nearly 18 times more likely to die before the age of five years versus in high-income countries, whereas in 1990 they were 14 times. Uh, so, and a lot of this is born, as uh, Zulfi said, uh, with the uh, in the neonatal period. Now. While progress have been made, as you've heard, um, it is very sobering to see that many projects and donor funds that go to maternal and child uh, projects, there is um, very little mention of uh, uh, newborns in many of the research uh, um, and uh, implementation science initiatives in low and middle income countries. And I think it is very important that we think, when we think of maternal health and maternal infections and sepsis, we also think about newborn infection and sepsis at the very same time. And the reason for this is um, not merely cosmetic or academic, but uh, it has really been proven that at least 20% of the burden of disease in children below age five and more so in the natal period is related to poor maternal health and nutrition as well as the quality of care delivery and during a newborn period. As Zulfi also pointed out, the issue of the infections occurring very early on in life, uh, which uh, would point that many of these infections are acquired through uh, the, uh, the passage of the birth canal. Uh, children who are also left uh, without a mother or if a mother has a severe illness, uh, these newborns and um, under five children, they're ten times more likely to die within two years of their mother's death. So, again, um, the value of this project of uh, maternal and newborn infections um, uh, being linked together is very uh, important, and this, this uh, highlights the importance of it. Uh, there have been some work done looking at uh, the burden of sepsis in newborn and children. And when we look at the burden of sepsis in newborn, we have some up, unpublished data that the burden that we can identify is no different from that in the adult uh, 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 population. It is really in, uh, usually in the high income countries, Australia, United States, Canada, some of Europe, uh, with some in India and um, a little in Asia. So these are population based data. Uh, so this is a very, um, important shortcoming that we have and hopefully over the next few years with the, um, the help of uh, many of our uh, colleagues who are um, listening in the audience, we will be able to change this. Uh, uh, the, this the pattern of this map and show uh, the, the burden in many of the areas that uh, we have very little information. You've also known that preventable maternal and child mortality are very common. In fact, uh, Uh, Over, uh, if we look at uh, mothers, 52% or more of the um, causes of maternal mortality occur during pregnancy and childbirth or the immediate postnatal period, and sepsis is a very major contributor in this area. Also the newborn uh, child mortality, about 60% of uh, children in the newborn period, they are from preventable neonatal, uh, neonatal conditions and common child illnesses. Uh, if we tally this, at least 50% is related somehow to sepsis. And again, as Zulfi pointed out, that care of the mother and child are very um, important together. Now, post-discharge mortality is one thing that we can look at very uh, uh, closely to help us in, uh, in uh, achieving sustainable developmental goals. Uh, we heard about uh, care within the hospital. But what we have found um, in uh, many areas uh, in Guinea-Bissau, Kenya, Malawi, uh, Tanzania, and also in North America, that uh, following discharge from sepsis, even in a newborn period, the the same number of children may die, uh, and many of these children die within a short period of time, within a matter of weeks to months. This gives us an opportunity to... Uh, improve care in this period and intervene. We are unsure of what they are dying from, but we know that at least 40% of those who return to care um, in the North American context are due to sepsis-related issues. Um, So in high uh, mortality areas, we should look at the uh, post-discharge mortality as a way to decrease uh, uh, the burden. And in those areas where mortality is low, we also need to start looking very carefully at morbidity because morbidity is also high. So the Smart Discharges Program is one that we have promoted at uh, um, through our Center for International Child Health at the University of British Columbia. And in Uganda, we were able to identify children who are vulnerable before they leave the hospital. And so we can make sure that the tools for survival and follow-up is um, is available to these um, children now we have done modeling in, the, in this area from 0 to 6 years and what we have found is that we can identify children 80% of those who eventually die would have been correctly identified using our model and uh, 30% of children would be flagged as high risk for follow up in fact 70% could be discharged and hence this would be wise use of uh, the resources um, in areas where resources are limited. So um, this is a model that we are now testing also in the zero to six-month-old, including a newborn, because the physiology is different, and there is more to come. And what this entails is identifying the sick child and following discharge from hospital, having a referral to a community health worker, and educating the mother of post-discharge vulnerability, health behavior recognition, and early health seeking, and giving very simple uh, incentives to return care. Uh, what we have found is that uh, following our, uh, this sort of program, we were able to increase uh, post-discharge health seeking by threefold, from 30% to 90%. Um, increase readmission for those who needed it, uh, twofold, from 6 to 12%, and uh, decrease uh, mortality from 3.5 to 2.5%. These are early data, and uh, uh, there is more to come in the initial population in the next uh, um, a little while. Uh, so uh, with that, I would like to uh, uh, thank um, uh, the audience for listening, and I would like to thank everyone uh, for joining, but would encourage everyone to join the Global Sepsis Alliance and continue this journey in decreasing uh, this uh, uh, major uh, healthcare uh, problem for both children and mothers uh, as we continue this process. Thank you very much. Uh,
1: thank you very much, Tex. Uh, it's a fantastic talk uh, and uh, good to hear it. Um, there is a question from the audience that uh, there is a trend towards occurrence of neonatal sepsis earlier in life. So what can be ad- done to address this problem.
2: Yeah, I think, I think obviously um, uh, we need to go. There are several things, obviously, as Zulfi mentioned, going upstream and making sure that we have good meticulous perinatal care. We also have um, uh, breastfeeding early and uh, for at least six months, kangaroo care, uh, meticulous um, uh, attention to hand hygiene, etc. And what we also need to do is look at uh, methods of diagnosing sepsis. I think that um, we have to be very careful and wed diagnosis and treatments with good antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, so what we have been uh, looking at, and there's some progress being made in this area, is to go upstream and look at DNA and RNA signals that um, infectious organisms give. Now, right now, it is not ready for prime time, but I think that this would be a great advance. Once um, it is ready and we can make it uh, um, affordable in uh, poorer countries, I think that that's going to be of a great benefit and may
1: revolutionize the way we treat sepsis in those areas. Another question from the audience is that, you know, in the low-resource settings, how can diagnosis be made without the help of elaborate diagnostics that are not yet available in primary and secondary level facilities, as many births are now taking place in the health facilities, even in low-resource settings.
2: Yeah, I think um, you will hear some uh, talk later on on the clinical signs of sepsis, and uh, treatment. another one treatment where referral is not feasible. I think that we have to go with syndromic diagnoses and the signs and symptoms that I mentioned, I think the way to go right now, because there is no way around, even in resource-rich areas, this is really what we rely on because the laboratory tests that we use are so nonspecific that they do not help us. And most of the treatment that needs to be given uh, needs to be given in a very time-sensitive and early manner, even before laboratory tests are available. I think the laboratory test determines how long we give antimicrobial agents or when we stop or what we uh, um Sort of revise our treatment, but the initial treatment has to be given early on.
1: Thank you very much, Tex, uh, for your presentation and also responding to questions. Uh, now we'll move on to the next talk, which is by Dr. Stephen Wall, and the title of the talk is "Neonatal Sepsis: Prevention and Treatment." Uh, Steve is a pediatrician and neonatologist. is currently as uh, working as Senior Director for Newborn Health Program Research at Save the Children. And for the past 14 years, he has served as a Senior Technical Advisor to Save the Children's uh, Saving Newborn Lives uh, Program, which is a global initiative supported by Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation. Steve.
3: Thank you, Kazi. Thank you all for joining. Um, It's a pleasure to be here for the World Sepsis Congress uh, for this uh, very special uh, online presentation. As uh, was noted, my topic is is broad and it actually could comprise volumes or does comprise volumes. I'm going to focus on uh, on essentially the low resource settings and look specifically at uh, prevention first and then treatment. With respect to the prevention of uh, newborn sepsis, I want to highlight three, um, three main mainstays of, uh, of treatment. Uh, obviously, the first is hygiene, and I want to emphasize hand washing. We've seen over and over again, particularly as more and more babies are being born in facilities uh, that uh, even soap and water are not available, uh, protocols are not in place for hand-washing. Uh, the practice is usually um, uh, not adhered to. And then there's very little monitoring and quality improvement to address these issues. So uh, very clearly, um, uh, putting uh, appropriate focus on hygiene and specifically on hand-washing is uh, critical. Obviously, for babies born at home, uh, hand-washing uh, you know, before handling, uh, and then even after discharge, uh, hand washing before handling the baby is is critical. Second point I want to make is immediate and exclusive breastfeeding, um, and also skin to skin care. So these are the uh, essential newborn care interventions um, that are related to uh, prevention of, uh, of of infection uh, by virtue of. Uh, First, the uh, the, the well-known effects of of breast milk um, producing, uh, giving antibodies to the baby. But Also, I'd like to mention skin-to-skin contact where the the, um, commensals uh, colonizing uh, the mother's uh, skin are able to colonize the baby. And and there's been evidence that skin-to-skin or KMC reduces infection. Lastly, I want to mention the new product um, that most of you probably know about, and that is chlorhexidine. Um, traditionally, for the cord, uh, uh, dry cord care uh, is, uh, has been, and remains a, um, a mainstay of, of, um, of prevention of infection uh, through the cord. But chlorhexidine, um, uh, due to uh, evidence in the last five to ten years, has emerged as uh, a commodity that, ha- that has great promise. Uh, there are some uh, issues, though, with uh, Chlorexidine, which I want to share with you. First, um, it's worth noting that Chlorexidine, um, as an antiseptic, has been around for many, many years. And here is the uh, uh, typical Hiboclans of, surg- of uh, uh, surgical scrub. Something that uh, most of us uh, clinicians are well uh, acquainted with. I want to give a brief summary of evidence um, with respect to chlorhexidine cord cleansing, uh, particularly the summary of the evidence of impact. Um, And I'm grouping these into two sets of trials. Um, Maybe eight, uh, five to 10 years ago, there were trials conducted uh, initially in Nepal, then in Bangladesh and Pakistan. So these South Asia trials all were in a context of a neonatal mortality rate uh, that exceeded 30 at baseline. The majority of the births were at home. Uh, The findings from these studies when combined uh, showed a substantial impact on neonatal mortality overall. Uh, in the, uh, uh, the study, the, those infants enrolled in the study, there was a 23% reduction compared to controls, uh, that is among those enrolled, which was estimated to be probably somewhere between about a 10 or 15% overall effect on uh, population uh, based uh, neonatal mortality. Um, there was a benefit that was seen with the early first day of life application. And there was additional benefit, uh, seen after day one, specifically for omphalitis. More recently, there were, um, uh, uh, trials from, uh, from Africa that were published, from Tanzania and, um, and also from Zambia. And the, um, uh, these were published in Lancet Global Health. And as many of you will know, the, um, The context and the findings were really quite different than what had been found in South Asia. First, the context uh, was uh, remarkably different in that uh, the the baseline neonatal mortality rate was less than 15 or around 15, and the majority of the births were in facilities. The findings were that there was no overall impact on neonatal mortality rate, uh, although there was a reduction in in, enomphalitis rates. So what can we conclude? I think it's uh, safe to say that the impact on neonatal mortality uh, with chlorhexidine is seen in high NMR settings, it has been seen, and should be expected in, in high neonatal mortality settings. Whereas in low neonatal mortality uh, settings, um, there has been no, Im- no impact on mortality demonstrated. Uh, my slide says less than 13, but I meant for it to say less than 15 which is what the evidence that we have uh, says. No one knows, actually, what is the shape of a curve between these two data points, that is, uh, 30 and, uh, and and 15. Um, you know, what is the threshold for when chlorhexidine um, um, has its benefits on mortality? Overall, uh, the recommendation uh, that uh, I would put forth is, uh, is, in, is consistent with the WHO recommendations. It's appropriate. Uh, chlorhexidine is appropriate intervention to reduce NMR in high NMR uh, or high infection risk settings. Um, it is uh, unclear at what point the benefit of chlorhexidine on mortality may re- reduce or become minimal in terms of uh, the, the overall uh, background decline in neonatal mortality. Um Florexine is appropriate to prevent omphalitis um, via repeated daily applications. I want to turn to treatment and highlight a, a couple of key points uh, with respect to treatment of uh, neonatal sepsis. First, there is, well, I think everyone knows is the gold standard um, that uh, WHO currently recommends for the, the pocket guide. Um, that all infants with presumed newborn sepsis um, um, be hospitalized and receive 7 to 10 days uh, of parenteral antibiotics with benzyl uh, penicillin or ampicillin plus an aminoglycoside such as gentamicin. Um, it is notable that the uh, Integrated Management of Childhood Illnesses or NCI, I- the neonatal as well, um, includes that um, at, at outpatient clinics um, when uh, signs of sepsis are seen uh, or possible severe bacterial infection as it's known uh, that uh, initial antibiotics uh, including ampicillin and gentamicin should be given at this first level facility with referral to hospital. And if referral is not possible then Uh, the newborn can be managed um, uh, with five to seven days of injectable antibiotics. Uh, This uh, altogether is three injections per day. Referral to hospital, however, is not an option for uh, many families, or even most families in in many of the areas, the low-income settings for every work. uh, First, there's the lack of, of accessible hospitals that provide newborn care services. But then hospitalization really may not be an option to many, uh, even most families in these kinds of uh, situations, due to uh, uh, factors such as distance, cost, perceived quality, uh, and then um, of course cultural factors. There have been um, uh, there's been evidence for some number of years around uh, community-based or home-based treatment of newborn sepsis. Uh, dating back to as as early as 1999, work from Abe Bang in India uh, overall uh, uh, found that a community health worker package that included the management of suspected newborn sepsis overall uh, with other interventions re- uh, reduced neonatal mortality by 62%. Um, similar, um, although less dramatic findings were found uh, by Dr. Abdulabaki in Bangladesh where a package of community-based interventions that included, um, again, treatment at home uh, of newborn sepsis when hospitalization was not possible. Overall, this package reduced neonatal mortality by 34%. In 2007, uh, WHO, USAID, and Saving Newborn Lives convened a global consultation because we wanted to review the evidence that existed at that point in time and to determine whether or not there was sufficient evidence, uh, uh, to actual, uh, actually scale up programs such as these. Um, the results of the expert consultation were that there was at that time felt to be insufficient evidence for program scale up of, of home-based treatment. And it was identified that there should be research to, um, uh, uh, establish whether there were effective alternative simplified regimens uh, that could be used, that would be easier to use in outpatient settings, in essence, uh, combinations of injectable and oral antibiotics. So research objectives were established for uh, trials that that, uh, were conducted in Asia and Africa called uh, the Simplified Antibiotic Trial, (SAT) and then AFRINEST in Africa. The um, uh, The objective was to evaluate if simpler antibiotic regimens are equivalent to a standard course of parental antibiotics for treatment of possible serious bacterial infections in young infants whose families do not accept hospitalization that being the important caveat. The regimens that were uh, tested here uh, are seen as uh, the, the experimental regimens. So the uh, first, the control arm, the reference arm, was gentamicin and penicillin, procaine penicillin, uh, once daily for seven days, a total of 14 injections. Again, these were all patients whose families refused hospitalization uh, and had signs of, uh, clinical severe infection. Um, and they were then, uh, the, uh, there was a, a randomization and babies could, uh, could be in one of, uh, in one of, uh, uh, three different arms. Uh, the first experimental arm was gentamicin once daily and amoxicillin twice daily, uh, for seven days. In this case, a total of seven injections. And then a third arm, uh, or or, sorry, a second experimental arm was gentamicin and procaine penicillin uh, once daily for two days. And then followed by amoxicillin twice daily for five days. Finally, in the AFRINES, but not in the SAT trials in Asia, in the AFRINES trial, uh, gentamicin once daily and oral amoxicillin twice daily was given for two days and thereafter oral amoxicillin was given twice daily for 5 days so in this case only two injections and also in um, in the Afrinist trial there was a rapid breathing only um, uh, uh arm in which uh, oral amoxicillin was given for 7 days uh in these Uh, uh, all were compared to the control arm of gentamicin and flucine penicillin for seven days, total of 14 injections. The main findings here are are, um, that there were, uh, with the management of clinically severe infection, uh, simplified antibiotic regimens for seven days were equivalent to the standard regimen for treatment of clinically severe infection, and that's um, shown as, um, as being uh, temperature, uh, uh, hyperthermia, hypothermia, severe chest and drawing, poor feeding, movement only when stimulated, and then no sign of uh, critical illness. For rapid breathing, isolated rapid breathing, um, the afrin trial found that oral amoxicillin for seven days was equivalent to the standard uh, um, uh, treatment. Um, and this is, again, for isolated rapid breathing without any other uh, uh, clinical signs. So in conclusion, Efforts to prevent newborn sepsis require diligence uh, in antenatal intrapartum care with focus on hygiene, specifically on hand washing, along with the provision of essential newborn care, uh, especially at the time of birth and, and, and just after. Uh, and that should include breastfeeding, thermal care with skin-to-skin care, and appropriate cord care. Chlorhexidine cord cleansing uh can be used to reduce uh, infections uh, acquired through the umbilical cord. Uh, it's appropriate to use in settings of, of high mortality uh, and, and morbidity, uh, but it needs to be based on a good understanding of the evidence and the context as well as the local policy. Simplified antibiotics in outpatient settings now offer new options for effective antibiotic treatment to thousands of newborns who do not have access to hospital treatment as it stands now. And I think we'll be hearing more about this in the the follow-on presentation. I just want to point out that there are some resources that are available. First, on the chlorhexidine on the Healthy Newborn Network. Um, That's healthynewbornnetwork.org. There is a chlorhexidine page that has a great deal of resources maintained by the chlorhexidine uh, uh, technical working group uh, that assists countries in uh, in implementing this this new intervention. I also want to note that the WHO website has, uh, of course, the chlorhexidine guidelines, which I was unable to post on this uh, um, uh, on this particular slide, but the WHO guidelines on uh, managing uh, possible serious bacterial infection in young infants when um, uh, hospitalization is not possible. That is on the WHO website and uh, as is an an important joint statement from WHO and UNICEF uh, regarding managing possible serious bacterial infections. Um, And this is intended particularly uh, to address um, the uh, concerns of professional associations. So with this, I will, um, I will end my, my presentation. And, uh, thank you very much for your attention.
1: Thank you very much, Steve. Um, now, uh, we don't have any time left for questions. Uh, uh, so I would go on to the next uh, talk, which is going to be given by Dr. Sameer Abubakar who is a senior medical officer in the Department of Maternal Newborn Child and Adolescent Health and Development in WHO. She is a specialist in international public health. So she will be making a presentation on treatment of six young infants with possible serious bacterial infection where referral is not feasible, as uh, Steve mentioned. Samira.
4: Thank you very much. First, thank you for giving me this opportunity to share with you the treatment of sick young infants with possible serious bacterial infection where referral is not possible. The previous speakers have highlighted the burden of neonatal mortality as well as the burden of uh, as well as the burden of infection or sepsis in newborns. So I'll just add one more to highlight how common uh, PSBI is. A 2012 systematic review and meta-analysis reported an estimated 6.9 million cases of PSBI with 9.8% case fatality ratio and a PSBI incidence risk of 7.6%. Now, currently, the management of sick young infants with possible serious bacterial infection is based on clinical experience and expert opinion. It often consists of hospitalization with injectable therapy up to five injections a day for seven to 10 days. However, in many cases, referral is not an option. The studies that Steve referred to from Africa and Asia have shown that in 68 to 98% of the cases, hospitalization or referral is not accepted by families for various reasons. So infections are common. Recommended treatment or hospitalization is not available or affordable or acceptable. What do we do? If we are to save as many lives as we can, we need to look for ways for increasing access to treatment. In order to do that, then we need to have a strategy in place for early identification of sick young infants by families or or, or community-based health workers. There needs to be a provision of treatment close to home by an appropriately trained and supplied health worker, as well as the provision of quality of care at hospitals. Now, this need led to the large-scale randomized control equivalency trials conducted in Africa and Asia in settings where referrals were not possible and that involved, as uh, Steve said, over 11,000 sick young infants. The studies generated the evidence that led to the development of the 2015 WHO guidelines on managing PSBI in young infants where referral is not feasible. The guideline recommends the use of simplified antibiotics for neonates and young infants zero to 59 days with PSPI. It provides clinical guidance on use of safe and effective regimens for outpatient treatment of less severe infections, and also provides programmatic guidance on the role of community health workers and home visits in identifying signs of uh, possible serious bacterial infection. Now, looking at the recommendations, the first is using home visits as part of postnatal care. Community health workers, counsel families, on recognition of signs of illness and promote timely care seeking. The second is treatment with oral antibiotics of infants seven to 59 days, presenting with fast breathing as the only sign of illness. The third is referral of zero to six day infant with fast breathing as the only sign of illness. And if referral is not accepted, treatment with oral antibiotics by an appropriately trained health worker. A fourth recommendation in terms of treatment is in outpatient settings with injections and oral antibiotics for infants 0 to 59 days, presenting with signs of clinical severe infection. And that is for families who do not accept referral or cannot access hospital care. And lastly, hospitalization after pre-referral treatment for infants 0 to 59 days presenting with signs of critical illness. When I talk about clinical severe, signs of clinical severe infection, it includes at least one sign such as movement only when stimulated. Not feeding well on observation, high temperature or low temperature, severe chest indrawing, and those with critical illness will include will present with at least one sign that could include convulsion, unable to feed at all, uh, unconscious cyanosis, etc. So now, to understand the operational issues for implementing this new treatment recommendations. Implementation research has been carried out in selected countries. And that implementation research included orientation meetings at country levels, policy dialogue, establishment of early learning demonstration sites, with strong partnership between technical experts and program implementers. The demonstration sites, or where the implementation research is taking place, includes multiple sites in four countries in Africa and multiple sites in three countries in in Asia. Now, in all the countries, particular attention was given, one, to community health workers and families' ability to recognize signs of illness and timely care seeking, two, health workers' ability to correctly assess classify and treat using simplified antibiotic regimens and using also a syndromic approach to assess and classify and uh, identify the appropriate treatment. Third, it depended on the availability of essential medicines and supplies needed for treating uh, sick infants. Now, what have we learned so far from implementation research? We have, we have seen and learned that hundreds of sick young infants have been successfully treated at first level health facilities in settings where referral was not feasible. We have learned that this success comes from a systematic approach to implementation. And that included good understanding of the evidence behind the recommendations, a policy dialogue with decision makers, strong partnership between the academia and the program implementers. It needed building on existing community health platforms to improve timely identification of sick infants, to promote care seeking, but also a systems re- uh, support for human resource development, task shifting, and availability of supplies. And of course... One of the implementation strategy also included putting in place interventions across the community, uh, continuum of care from community to primary health care to the referral facility. In conclusion, we have seen that the implementation of the guideline and the recommendation on treatment where referral is not possible has the potential to increase access to treatment of the SBI in young infants. It can contribute to the reduction of neonatal and young infant mortality. It can reduce inequity in access to care. It can provide an opportunity to improve home visits. And it can also be implemented within the context of national health strategies, such as every newborn action plan and other available intervention packages. With this, I'll stop, and thank you very much for your attention.
1: Thank you very much, Samira. It was uh, an excellent presentation on a very important issue, especially because uh, we know that many of these young infants can't really access care in their health facilities. Um, there is a question for you that... Uh, In countries like India, somebody has asked that, how do these simplified antibiotics work in neonatal infections where there is also high antibiotic resistance uh, in bacteria? So could you answer that?
4: I uh, I think the, the, the recommendation that we have is for management of sick young infants at first level health facility. Today, I think we've seen a lot of problems in bringing infants to to seek care. Now, a number of studies have showed, so I I think the, 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 the recommendation that is put in place gives a good rationale for screening those infants who need to be treated with antibiotics and those who need to be followed up. So I think using such critical or systematic assessment uh, in identifying those who need, uh, who need treatment, I don't think will contribute to increasing antibiotic resistance. In fact, it, 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 it brings in the rational use of antibiotics, but also remember that at the end of the day, the most important recommendation still remains that infants should be infants with the possible serious bacterial infection, should be hospitalized and treated uh, appropriately.
1: Thank you very much, Samira. Excellent talk and a very good response to the question which was asked. Um, we will now go on to the next talk, which is by Dr. Pierre Tissier, who is the Director of Pediatric Intensive Care and Neonatal Medicine at Paris. South University Hospitals in France, and he's also a professor of pediatrics at the Paris South University School of Medicine. He'll be talking about clinical signs of sepsis in New nets Pierre?
5: Yeah, thank you so much for uh, the invitation to participate to this fantastic uh, uh, event. So during the next uh, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, I will uh, give you my view on, and give you some insight on the clinical signs of sepsis uh, in neonates, and hopefully um, Dr. Buta and Dr. Kisun already uh, give a lot of information that are very useful that will help me uh, for my talk. so what is uh, abso- uh, first I have to disclose some uh, some consulting research research but outside this uh, this uh, presentation. So what is absolutely important to remember is that at the very beginning of sepsis you have the interaction of a pathogen with the host and all the clinical signs and symptoms will be the consequence of this interaction and shortly one of the very end of uh, of the sepsis and the resulting endpoints of all the signs may be the organ dysfunction and everything that we will discuss is related to this pathophysiological approach but if we think a little bit uh, more deeply uh, on the On the two main paradigms of uh, of sepsis, and mostly on the clinical science and the clinical presentation in newborns, in the neonates, is that the fact that uh, we know that mortality is much higher in newborns than in older infants, and we also know that uh, infants and newborns have a higher incidence of multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. It means that we have to consider that the 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 signs and the clinical presentation of sepsis in those in this population may be very different from uh, older children, and uh, one of the reason of that is that now we know that there is uh, some specificity, some age specificity in terms uh, of response, in terms of physiological response, in terms of. Um, uh, protein uh, separ- uh, secretion in terms of physiological adaptation and when we consider a host response to infection in terms of neonates or infants and or children of school age, it's very very different and we have to consider those differences when we, uh, we uh, are approaching neonatal sepsis. But the first step is to define the, um, the sepsis as a uh, uh, text um, said is to have a definition. And you, we all know that diagnosing neonatal sepsis can be very difficult. But there is still four parameters that we have to consider. The first one is that, uh, when we are discussing of neonatal sepsis, when the physician or the healthcare, um, are discussing of the possibility of a sepsis in the neonate, usually it's a presumed sepsis. It means that he needs to have some Clinical symptoms uh, in association with the context, and the context is very, very important. Uh, Maternal-fetal risk factors, as mentioned by Dr. Butta, are absolutely central, and I will discuss a little bit a little later. But uh, most, uh, most importantly, the clinical symptoms related to neonatal sepsis are totally subtle and insidious, and maybe totally non-specific. And among them, you know that there is the temperature variability the changing behavior of the baby uh it can become lethargic there can be some feeding uh, problems skin perfusion abnormalities you can have some hemodynamic or respiratory abnormalities such as tachycardia hypotension tachypnea or apnea there is no metabolic abnormalities. If there is the possibility to do a glucose test, but also there is the risk of developing a focal infection, on soft tissue on conjun- uh, conjunctivitis. If uh, we go a further on the parameters that are central for the diagnosis for the diagnosis of uh, neonatal sepsis, you really have to consider two parameters the first one is that we know that 97% of culture proven infection had three risk factors its premature rupture of membrane preterm labor and obstetric diagnosis of chorioamnionitis and this is really important to consider that um, risk factors are central for the diagnosis of non sepsis, and it's part of the clinical science that has to be considered. The second important parameters is that there is a huge diversity in terms of pathogen. For sure, there is virus, there is parasites, but in terms of path- bacterial pathogen, you may know that uh, depending on the country, on the hospital, you will have a significant difference. For sure, uh, group B streptococci are very well um, present in many places, uh, as well as gram negative bacteria. But remember that in many countries, uh, there is some uh, screening, uh, strep B screening and treatment in the mother. And in those countries, you will have a shift toward enterobacteria, say. And this is a very interesting study uh, in Spain where they were able to demonstrate that uh, there was a significant increase in early onset sepsis due to Escherichia coli uh, as compared to a a significant decrease in a group B Streptococci infection. This is true for all of age group and also for a very low birth weight infant. And considering the the pathogen, the, the pathogen is really important because we know that host response is totally dependent on the type of bacteria and it's important to re- to remember that uh, you may have some bacteria that can uh, drive a very impressive inflammatory response in other words clinical symptoms with very low inoculum for example for shell coli whereas you can have a very low initial response in terms of symptoms uh, that comes more uh, powerful when the, the concentration of bacteria, the bacterial load increase, for example, for gram positive bacteria. On the other side, you will have some pathogen like Listeria monocytogenes when you will need a very high concentration of pathogen, a very high bacterial load to uh, have some symptoms. And this is absolutely essential because it will determine the clinical signs. So let's have a look more specifically to the pathophysiologic changes in neonatal sepsis. First, we know that babies with sepsis have an encephalopathy, at least on EEG. It's very well demonstrated. We know that those patients can have fever that usually die hypothermic instead of hyperthermic. They have abnormalities, very rapid peripheral perfusion abnormalities. Tachypnea and apnea are very frequent as well as uh, as well as uh, cardiovascular instability. And when we discuss about the cardiovascular instability, it's important to remember one of the specificity of the newborn is the cardiorespiratory uncoupling. The babies has this specificity that is very sensitive to our sympathetic tonus. And one is not doing fine. he can be bradycardiac. He ha- can have wide variation in heart rate and uh, all the, uh, the hemodynamic regulation. This goes like with the the importance of all these symptoms. Um, clinical symptoms are key in diagnosis of uh, of sepsis in the neonate. And there is one. There is many studies looking at. The comparison of different biological biomarkers. But when you look more specifically to clinical signs like uh, feeding intolerance, uh, hypotonia, apnea, temperature instability, you can find out that the accuracy of these clinical symptoms are as good as all these biomarkers. And if we have more uh, deep analysis of uh, Uh, the value of the clinical parameters or the clinical score, we can have some area under the curve of around uh, 0.8, which is exactly the same as the best uh, biomarkers. So clinical symptoms are key for sepsis diagnosis in the the neonate. Just to illustrate uh, what I said, um, there is some study looking at meta-analysis looking at the the part, the importance of all these symptoms in terms of diagnosis of sepsis. And uh, very interestingly, what comes out from many, many studies is that like, uh, alteration of uh, of the, the general behavior of the baby, like lethargy, as well as uh, uh, abnormalities in perfusion, paler and mottling, are ex- extremely well correlated with the development of sepsis and more specifically to healthcare-associated sepsis. And when we go to children of less than 34 weeks of gestational age, uh, lethargy, paler, poor peripheral perfusion are very important, as well as apnea and bradycardia. So this is important to remember that those parameters are extremely important. And speaking more specifically to uh, apnea and bradycardia and what I said before, the uh, uh, cardiocirculatory and uh, the tonus uh, uh, uncoupling, um, there is some way to uh, analyze the, uh, the variation of the heart rate and the, the way to measure this uh, uh, cardiocirculatory uncoupling. And uh, a very recent study uh, showed that a randomized trial with more than 3,000 very low birth weight infants was able to show that if you are able to monitor this Uh, these parameters, the uncomplaining of the cardiocirculatory system, you have a direct effect on mortality, but for sure, this is uh, an advanced monitoring. Another point to to insist on is uh, the fact that when we consider um, sepsis, either early onset sepsis, um, we have to consider uh, the maternal risk, as previously mentioned by Dr. Bhutan and by the Dr. Kisun. Uh, if we are talking about more deeply about late-onset sepsis, it's important to remember, and it's exactly similar to the adult literature. it's very important to remember that in those patients, there is a few factors that are central, which is the presence of infectious complications uh, it means that if there is uh, infectious foci, uh, unclear infectious foci, you will have an additional mortality related to, to, to sepsis. The second parameter is that the sequence of bloodstream infection. means that if you have one repetitive, two repetitive infection, the probability that your child will die of a sepsis attributable uh, mortality is very, very high. And uh, this outlined the fact that at some points, we always have to consider that we need to clear all focus of infection. And this could be meningitis, uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia for the patient who are hospitalized in, uh, in ICU, all healthcare-associated infection like uh, a catheter-related, central line-related uh, infection, and enterocolitis. So this is absolutely central to remember that is pretty similar to the adult, that if the Infectious foci is not clear. Your patient has a very high uh, risk of mortality. So in conclusion, I think there is four points to remember in terms of clinical science of substance neonate. The first one is that organ failures are important markers of severity in newborn. I know that it's very difficult to evaluate organ failure clinically, but still, this is important to consider that when there is organ failure in the context of Where there is a risk of infection, your patient has sepsis and has to be treated aggressively. The second point is that maternal fetal risk factors need absolutely to be considered. Remember, 97% of children with early onset neonatal sepsis has the association of three risk factors. The second parameter is to consider the pathogen. It's important to know what are the risks, the pathogens that are running around your unit because it will change the clinical presentation. Lethargy, paler, altered peripheral perfusion, as well as apnea and bradycardia, are major clinical signs of neonatal sepsis. And the last point is that, to remember, is that unresolved or repetitive focus of infection, as well as, well as pulmonary hypertension, we can also say like babies needing resuscitation, are independent risk factors of sepsis, achievable mortality in neonatal. Thank you so much for your attention. Uh,
1: thank you very much, Pierre, for a very illuminating talk. Uh, unfortunately, we do not have any time for questions uh, for this talk. So I would go on to the next one, which is the last uh, talk of this session, which will be given by Dr. Anne Marie Nwandrasou, who is the Vice Chair of the Department of Pediatrics and Associate Professor of Pediatric Infectious Disease and Immunology at the Sophia Children's Hospital of the Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Uh, The topic of our talk is, is is there a role for biomarkers in antibiotic stewardship in neonates suspected of early onset sepsis? And Mary, please.
6: Thank you very much for this introduction. Um, So I will talk about a clinical problem that all clinicians that care for neonates are dealing with every day. So it is the problem of when to start and stop antibiotics in a neonate that is suspected of early onset sepsis. So, for example, a neonate born from a mother who had a fever during delivery or who had prolonged rupture of membranes and the neonate is grunting. So why is it so difficult? Well, the clinical symptoms that Pierre just talked about are nonspecific the laboratory results are also nonspecific and the blood culture is not rel- reliable. So um, the blood culture taken taken from neonates is often falsely negative because of a limited blood volume, volume withdraw from uh, the neonate and because of antibiotics often administered to the mother during delivery if the mother had a fever. So on the other hand, early diagnosis and treatment are essential to prevent severe and life threatening complications. At this very moment, still up to 60% of the neonates will proven sepsis die rapidly when sepsis is left untreated. So this is what we all fear for, and therefore we hospitalize neonates and start intravenous antibiotics while we wait for the results of the blood cultures, a set of which we know that they are unreliable. And then we observe how the neonate is doing clinically. So what numbers are we talking about? If we define early onset sepsis as sepsis within the first three days of life, the incidence varies from 0.1 to 0.7 per thousand in high-income countries and up to 3 per thousand live births, and even higher in low-income countries. So what is the impact of our justified fear for neonatal early onset sepsis? It's huge antibiotic overtreatment. the numbers from Europe are really impressive. Also in my country, the Netherlands, where we have very restrictive antibiotic prescribing and have resistance rates among the lowest of Europe, we treat about 8% of all-term, uh, near-preterm neonates for two to three or more days with antibiotics. And given the incidence of proven early antisepsis of 0.1%, this suggests huge overtreatment of almost 7 to 8% of all neonates born. So, as we all know, uh, antibiotic overtreatment is not without hazards. It results in the risk of selection of multidrug-resistant bacteria, and especially for this vulnerable group of neonates, there might also be important risks on an individual level. So, evidence is accumulating that disturbing the microbial flora in this very early life shapes the immune system and future health. Um, so, early in life, Antibiotics are associated with inflammatory diseases as allergies, inflammatory bowel disease, and even obesity. And of course, hospitalization is not only about cost and burden on monitor facilities, but it also has impact on the start of life bonding between parents and child in this very precious period of life. So what is the current clinical practice in high-income countries? There are many national guidelines that differ on some points, but can basically be summarized in a flowchart that this is seen, which is summarized as neonates from 34 weeks gestational age onwards of whom the mother had risk factors like GBS colonization, choria or prolonged rupture of membranes, are divided in neonates with or neonates without clinical symptoms. In children with clinical symptoms of infection, antibiotic therapy started. Without clinical signs or symptoms, it depends on the laboratory results and the subjective assessment of risk factors. And in practice, the start and the duration of antibiotic treatment is often more dependent on the physician's belief and the unit's culture than on objective variables. In the US, a comparison of 127 neonatal intensive care units showed a four times variation, 40 times variation in patients' days of use with similar rates of proven infection. So we also have investigated how pediatricians in 16 countries in Europe decide on their treatment decisions and how this relates to the guidelines. We also found, like in the U.S., that there's a broad diversity in clinical practice and a lack of agreement between the current guidelines. For example, this slide shows the duration of treatment. So we asked pediatricians to evaluate three kinds of cases. Neonates with a low risk of sepsis, the upper bar, medium risk, the middle bar, and high risk, the lowest bar. And the colors represent what pediatricians would decide in such a case. For example, if you focus on the high risk, the lowest bar, uh, the blue represents decisions depending on laboratory results. The dark blue represents pediatricians treating this case shorter than 72 hours. Light blue treating for five to seven days. And then you can see that it varies a lot. Um, also with the red and the orange, um, so there's a huge rainbow of colors um, suggesting that a lot of variation is between the different pediatricians when one and the same case. So for all groups together, so for all risk groups together, the majority of the respondents, 72%, relies on the laboratory results to stop antibiotics. Um, Leukocyte count, CRP, and neutrophil count are used the most by the clinicians that participated in this study. The diversity with respect to the duration of antibiotic therapy in higher-risk situations raises the question, what safe strategies there are to minimize the duration of antibiotic therapy without undertreatment of truly septic neonates? So... To address this issue, Martin Stocker, the head of the neonatal and pediatric intensive care unit in the Children's Hospital of Lutzen in Switzerland, and I started a large multi-center randomized controlled trial, the NeOPIN study, that was published just two weeks ago in the Lancet. So the aim of our study was to reduce antibiotic treatment in neonates suspected of early-onset sepsis by progesterone-guided treatment with unchanged outcome. So the unchanged outcome was essential as it's not so hard to stop antibiotics earlier. The question is whether or not it's safe to do. So what is procalcitonin and why using procalcitonin, PCT, and not CRP? PCT is a pro-hormone of calcitonin that increases significantly in bacterial infection for reasons we don't know. We wanted to use the marker with the highest negative predictive value in neonates, which currently still is PCT. And that's mainly because PCT is 12 hours earlier detectable than CRP, which is crucial if you want to shorten the duration of antibiotic treatment in this group of patients. So the costs have gone down the last uh, couple of years to less than 10 euros since the patent has expired and PCT is available from multiple companies. So what did we do in this? Study, we assessed the risk category in a neonate was in. We categorized neonates into four risk groups: infection unlikely, infection possible, infection probably uh, probable, and infection proven. And we did that by giving points to risk factors up to three points. For example, if mother had a fever, the neonate would get one point. If the neonate would ha- also have respiratory distress, another point. And with the CRP of five, no additional point would be given. So in total, two points for this neonate. With two points in neonate goes into risk category infection possible uh, via the algorithm. And in a neonate that was randomized for the procalcitonin arm, PCT was measured twice the first 24 hours after start of antibiotics. And in case of two times a low PCT, the antibiotics could be stopped after these 24 hours instead of waiting for blood cultures. So when using PCT in neonate, it's very important to know that there is a physiological increase of PCT the first three days of life. So in adults and children, in case of no bacterial infection, PCT is very low, which should be as low as 0.1 nanogram per mil. In healthy neonates, PCT levels can be up as high as 10 nanogram per mil without any infection. So we therefore developed a normogram that was used by all pediatricians that included patients in the study. And um, in the case that I just described in th- that is shown now is with one PCT above the upper limit of normal, Followed by two PCT values within the normal range, antibiotics could be stopped after 30 hours instead of waiting for blood cultures um, or even treating for seven days because of symptoms. So we included 1700, 1710 neonates in 18th century, 18 centers in four countries in Canada, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and Czech Republic. So this large sample size was necessary for the safety endpoint. We are very happy to report that there was no study-related mortality and that the number of reinfections was very low. There was one not-study-related death in the standard arm, and the table shows the number of suspected reinfections in the intention-to-treat analysis, five in the PCT group and four in the standard group, and in the per-protocol analysis, five in the PCT group and also four in the standard group. So with these very low numbers on a very large number of patients, Statistically, you have to analyze this with a broad confidence interval, which resulted in that the predefined 2% reinfection rate was within the lower and upper limit of the exact confidence interval. And with a lot of uh, statistical magic, uh, non-inferiority could therefore not be shown. However, clinically, this is, of course, very good news that it's just a very low number of um, reinfections. So the duration of antibiotic treatment Was significantly shorter in the PCT group as expected. 55 hours in the intention to treat arm and 64 hours in the standard arm, which might not seem clinically relevant, but for this huge number of neonates and for individual patients for whom the duration of NPR treatment could be reduced by days, this is of course relevant. The duration of hospitalization was also significantly shorter, but only just a couple of hours. 123 hours, first 126 hours in the intention-to-treat analyses. But this was mainly attributable to delayed preterm neonates that could be not be sent home due to, for example, feeding difficulties or jaundice. So there are a lot of more results, but I have lost. end for this talk. And before I summarize, I would like to thank all collaborators on the Neopean study because it was an amazing team to do this study with, so much education by so many clinicians, nurses, and students. And, of course, Martin Stocker, the co-PI, and Wendy van Eyck, the PhD student. Without her, this would never been such a high-quality study, which is also true for the research coordinator, Elaine Visser. And, of course, our funding organizations. And we are very happy to announce that the Sophia Foundation also granted us money to develop an app that makes it easy for clinicians all over the world to use this algorithm for free And implement this study in clinical practice and send neonates in comparable settings with comparable incidence and safety netting earlier home without antibiotics. So, in summary, I showed that there is a high variability in current management of neonates suspected of early onset sepsis, and that up to 7 to 8% of late term and late preterm neonates receive antibiotics during the first three days of life. But its prevalence of proven early onset sepsis is only 0.1%, suggesting. Substantial over-treatment, and the need for better diagnostic tools. In the meantime, until we have better diagnostic tools, we did a very pragmatic trial that was published in the last two weeks ago, and shows that it's possible to shorten antibiotic treatment significantly with unchanged outcome. So this is for now, um, until there are questions. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much, uh, Anne-Marie. And um, this was a, a, a great. The presentation.
0: Thanks for listening and thanks to everybody who made this possible, especially our sponsor, the Patient Safety Movement Foundation. This Congress is being brought to you free of charge, so if you enjoyed it, please consider supporting our cause. We'll continue with the session Updates on Sepsis on November 2nd. I hope you join us again. Clear, clear, clear.